A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I would go to South by Southwest in this Doubletree Hotel, and I would pass out demo tapes, and I would get kicked out of the hotel for soliciting. So I go back in the car, I'd put a hat on, change my clothes, and then go back in, you know, and I just do it two or three times so they caught on, and then I would go home. Hello and welcome to another episode of Varvet. I'm Christopher Triumph and I love calling myself your host, so I'll do that. I'm your host and today's guest is the extremely talented and successful songwriter Savan Kotecha. I do realize you may not know his name, but you sure know his work. Here's some of it. Ziggy <laughs> uh-huh. I got one more problem with you, girl. Cause if you Yes, that was people like Ariana Grande, Ellie Goulding, One Direction, Maroon 5, Britney Spears, Jesse J and Nicki Minaj. And Savan has a part in all of those hit songs. And he's worked with other people like Justin Bieber, Westlife, Cher Lloyd, Celine Dion, Madonna, Adam Lambert. Well, being one of Max Martin's closest co-workers, he's sort of been involved in pretty much everything over the last few years. We'll dig deeper into his story in a minute. I just want to mention also that he has worked as a vocal coach on X Factor in the US. If you've seen him there, he was handpicked by Simon Cowell for that assignment. In a few moments, he'll also mention a Nick Jonas track. It's climbing the charts right now and it goes like this. Think about me like I know you will fall for me, let it fall for me, give it all to me, stand in the middle of the floor. Yes, that's a good thing. It's Nick Jonas featuring Sage the Gemini. And the Peter that he mentions, that's our mutual friend, the songwriter Peter Svensson. And I'll be honest with you guys, I'm friends with some of the Swedes that Savan works with at the MXM studio in Los Angeles. And the Martin, or Max, he mentions, is obviously Max Martin, the greatest and most successful songwriter of modern time. Someone also mentions Cheyron, which was a studio in Stockholm, the epicenter of the Swedish music wonder for a decade or so. It's been closed now, but anyway, if there are more names dropped uh, like these ones, I recommend that you listen via the Acast app, as we can give you links directly to people in there. So, without further ado, this is my interview with Savan Kotecha from March 2015. Roll the tape, please.
How are you today? I'm okay. I'm tired. I'm very, very, very tired. How uh, come? We're recording. I got home like at one in the morning, and then my kid is in the phase of not wanting to sleep in his room, and he came to our bed. Oh, well, I got home actually. He was in our bed, and he decided that he didn't want to sleep anymore. So he decided he wanted to play with his cars and wanted to try and poop, and decided he couldn't poop, and then decided that he wanted to pee, and then it was a whole lot of things. And he decided that he wanted to pile all his toys on the floor, and that was like three thirty in the morning. <laughs> and then when he finally got to sleep, and then at at six he woke up. So I'm I'm on like probably two hours sleep I think. Okay. Can you tell me what you were working on? We were recording Nick Jonas on like this rap feature. We I just one off I just one off song that I did with uh, Ilya, one of the Wolf cousins of Sweden. I can't I don't know his last name, but, and Peter Svensson and and the rappers do, like wanted it. So we we were recording Nick Jonas on the singing part. It's kind of fun. It was just one of those. Like he was supposed to record today, and then you get a call like, "Hey, he can't come. He's got to fly because he's, sh- he's shooting like two TV shows at the same time." And then it's like, "Yeah, he can come tonight. What time tonight? Well, how late can you start? Well, <laughs> I've got a two-year-old. I don't know how late I can start." And then he's like, "Yeah, nine o'clock. He can come." Mm-hmm. So we had to just do it. Sometimes you just have to do it, and then your next day is screwed. I feel like I was like partying last night. I can understand that, yeah. but you didn't, of course. No, of course. Okay, so could you tell me where we are now? We are in my office in Los Angeles, in my house, but my, I have a guest office, I guess, or guest house, and we're in the office there. So this is like this is the place that I, when we moved here, we had another house, but I didn't have any space to write, so we got this house, and yeah, this is a place I escape whenever I can, and I spend when I get home from the studio, I usually spend a couple hours here, like winding down and getting ideas and I write, I start a lot of songs here in this room. What you have is one guitar. One guitar that I barely know how to play. It's a seagull. It's I have an, a seagull as well. Oh really? Yeah. I'm embarrassed by the fact I can't play guitar. Bare I can barely play. I can barely get by. And I know nothing of guitars other than I just had someone, can you guys give me a guitar? How much? Well, 200 bucks and that's what I got. That's what I ended up with. And I I do use it like for ideas and to find melodies sometimes, and then I have speakers, just a TV and gym equipment, which is rusting because I never use it, and yeah, and the couch, simple. So when you do write music here, it's only Pro Tools or yeah. Well, I don't. Um, since I'm mostly melody and lyric, sometimes I'll start an idea on the guitar. Sometimes I'll write a cappella, and then I send it to some of my Swedes, as I like to call them. And they will produce it up, or sometimes they'll send me tracks. So I'll come here and I'll vibe on tracks. Or how I start songs a lot of times is I, I look for titles and like and like lines. So I, I, I'll sit here and sort of sometimes I watch like really girly TV shows and try and get ideas, or I'll just surf the internet and read poetry and things like that. And I just get ideas, and I just it's my sort of time to do that. And then when I find like a title that I like, I try and find a melody to it. And I just record it on my phone sometimes. Is it fair to say that your specialty is top line? Yeah, melody and lyric. So that's what the defines top, top line. Top line, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then so, I mean sometimes I'll have an idea for a track like Problem, the Ariana Grande song. I had this for like a year. I had this whole like have a whisper, and then it drops into an 808 beat, you know. So and then you find a collaborator like Ilya, who's amazing, who just gets it right away, and 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 like you're on the same wavelength, and then he does his thing, and it's awesome, you know. But yeah, top line. I used to do. I used to do everything when I lived in Austin when I was in my parents' house. But then when I started going to Sweden, there's such great producers and musicians that I just got really lazy with everything. I did like cakewalk. I used to use cakewalk on a PC when I was in high school, and I just I just got so lazy in Sweden. In Sweden, you just I was kept going there, and I'd never met other producers or songwriters. So it was just like, oh, do you guys program? Great, do that, <laughs> and yeah. I'll just sing stuff. You know, that's kind of how it was. Let's take it back from the beginning. Then you were born and raised in Texas, Austin. No, I was. Well, I was born in Vermont. So my parents moved. My parents were they're Indian, a really traditional Indian family. As you probably met my mom, so you probably can tell. And she was wearing um, a, a sari. <laughs> Did she have one of those things in the forehead? No, she's no, not she, that. No. She's just, but she will like if we're going somewhere. What's the name of your? cast well we're Gujaratis and the cast is I think Lohana I think is the cast but Gujarati is like the language and the culture I guess okay but they were born in Uganda so 
in like I guess the twenties, I might be getting my history horribly wrong. I did horrible in school, so you can understand. <laughs> but, I think in the twenties, all India was so poor. Like they were from poor. I think my grandparents were from poor Bunder, India. It was so poor. So the men would there were jobs in South Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. So the men would go. So like Gandhi went to South Africa. Like that, like the men would go and get jobs, and then they'd send for their wives, who were probably like teenagers. And then as they built businesses, they would send for the families. So that's what happened. And there were like I think fifty thousand Indians in Uganda. Then Idi Amin came into power, and sort of he was the Hitler of Africa, as a lot of people know. And he just basically said, "All the Indians, I'm not going to kill you yet, but you're out by this date. If you don't leave, I'm going to kill you." So they had to leave all their property. My grandfather from my mom's side actually became a really wealthy businessman there, but had to leave everything. But he had the foresight of sending money to the UK. So they bought like a house in Wembley in London because they sort of saw what was happening because guards would come to the house and arrest my uncles and beat them up and take them to prison until they got paid off, like that kind of stuff. So they, my mom married my dad because he said that he would live in the UK, that he would go to the UK when the date came, like all the other family members were. But when they, when, Idi Amin kicked them out. They went to the UK. My dad was like, yeah, I want to go to America. So they had to go to America. So they went to Vermont. He worked for IBM. So they went to Vermont. My sister was born. They moved to Manassas, Virginia, which is a suburb of DC because they were transferred from IBM. No, sorry, they went to Vermont. They moved to Manassas. My sister was born in Manassas. They moved back to Vermont. They were transferred back to Vermont. I was born. They were transferred back to Manassas. And then when I was in before high school, we went to Texas. Okay, so the, your first memories are from Manassas, yeah, Washington D.C. area. Okay, yeah, it was it was I love that area. It was it was sort of like you, Texas is so different than there, it, you know. Like in Manassas, it was right out of, outside of, outside of Washington D.C., but it was like IBM was there, so you had like the Indians that worked for IBM, and they were like upper middle upper middle class, and then everything else was super ghetto at the time. Okay, now I think it's a lot. Now it's a lot of people that work in Washington, D.C. that live there, so it's a more affluent place. But it was, like, super gay. So all my friends were kids that, like, you know, they lived in neighborhoods where if you walk across the neighborhood, you get your shoes stolen. But it was interesting because I was Indian, and there, were very, there weren't that many Indians. And there was, like, the white kids and the black kids, and I was, like, in between. So all my friends ended up being the black kids, but I was picked on by the white kids because they would be like, well, you're trying to be black. And I'm like, no, well, well, otherwise am I trying to be white? I don't get it. You know, it was like that thing. So all my friends were these kids, like, from rough, super rough neighborhoods, like, drug-dealing older brothers, and, like, you know, it was like that kind of school. You know? But then when we go home, it would be, like, in this nice neighborhood, but it was, it was this nice neighborhoods were, like, smaller, and then you go to these other places. It was, but, it was interesting. But did you end up in bad company, so to speak? No, I, had, I probably would have been if I stayed there. I mean, didn't do anything more than try and have a contest who can steal the most from the 7-Eleven kind of thing like that but you know a lot of my friends like old had older brothers that were dealing crack and it was like that kind of thing you never really saw much of it but you just knew you know but we went to texas and it was a whole different world because when we went to texas it was the first place like my parents when they go there obviously they're you know a traditional indian family and their their focus is education so like oh where is the you know where is the best school and it was sort of in the rich area of Austin. So we, li- we lived in an apartment. So we went from a house to living in an apartment, and I was sleeping in the family room. So I, as a teenager, I actually didn't really have my own room the first few years because I was in the, fa- in like the, the family area. We just put a bed there because we were waiting to see what, where we we're going to get a house or whatever. What happened to all your hormones, man? Oh, that didn't exist. <laughs> no, okay. And when you're with a traditional Indian family like mine, and you're raised around other Indians because we're always raised. Wherever we moved, there was an Indian community. That didn't exist. I couldn't have a girl call my house till I was 18. Okay. You know, I didn't even think about that. Wasn't even. It was like how you don't wake up thinking about heroin, probably. I don't know. Yeah, it's you know, it just it doesn't enter your. It's not in your atmosphere. That's what sex was for me, like uh-huh, as a okay. teenager. It wasn't even because you you go to high school and you go to Texas, high school in Texas. So when you go home, you're in this Indian community because there's a lot of Indians in Austin and sort of all your after-school activities were in this Indian community, so it's very traditional and conservative, and they would never let the, if you were, you would never be allowed in a girl's room. Like, the parents would go crazy. You know, you couldn't do that. But then you're also in Texas, where it's very conservative Christian, a lot of Southern Baptists. Like, all my friends in Texas had, like, promise rings, you know, like, they wouldn't have sex before marriage. You know, it was that kind of environment. So you didn't even get the sex stuff in school, Mm -hmm. you know? All right. Which is weird because I also write like the most filthy songs on the planet now, <laughs> um, you know. But like, which probably explains a lot. But um, 
No, it's 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 like one of those places. It's one of those things. And you know, we went to Austin, so we went to this high school, which was so different because it was really we were actually the only minorities in the high school. I think there's one more. There's I think a black kid, an African American kid, and then I think there was one other Indian, and that was it. And it was just really like southern. Like they were. It was a high school where while we were there, they played like their football, the American football team was like one of the best ones, considered one of the best ones in the state. And it was like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie like Varsity Blues or Friday Night Lights. Well, I loved the, uh, Friday Night Lights. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, if that. So it is like that. Yeah. In Texas, high school football is like huge. Friday nights, like high school football, like American football. It's exactly like this movie. It's like we went to like, like the head of the, the like the big football players that are famous they would get an easy ride through classes there was a convenience store across this, that high school and i remember like the star football player and this is like a kid like 16 and it's probably not a, a big deal in sweden because people it's drinking is part of more of part of the culture but like you know he had a great game and you saw like the guy behind the counter was like hey come here And put out a six pack. And I saw I've seen a scene like this in a movie, which is exactly what happened. Like like six pack. Don't tell your parents. Great game. Okay. And I mean it's like, great, cool, thanks. And he like has like, you know, getting beers and stuff. When you're not supposed to do that until you're twenty one, just because, you know, one of them like one of the guys like got like in a car accident, killed somebody and sort of got away. It was like because because it's if you're a high school football player And, and a star football player in, in, in Texas, you're like – you're a celebrity. You're on the front page of the papers and stuff like that. Okay. Like fuck world news. It's yeah. like you know, so-and-so from Westlake High School was like you – know, broke these records. So back then it was like that. But it was like an interesting school because – so I came from sort of this ghetto school and then go to this really like people with cowboy hats and like you – know, and it was sort of rich Texans. And they would be playing one game. They were playing the inner city school, a school called LBJ, and people actually brought banners saying "Go home, N word." I mean, it was like that kind of thing. So, and I was trying to be rebellious, and I had my hats to the side. You know, I was like, "Yeah, but I'm from like DC area, man." Like, you know, and like I would like put. I was like, I was reading like Malcolm X biography, and I would like put the biography on my desk and like try to piss all the kids off. You know, that kind of stuff. I was sort of. But after a while, we realized, me and my sister like, we don't want to be in this school. So my parents sort of got it, got the hint. But we were sort of unhappy. It was just too much of that. But it, it was really racist. Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah. like, there was a lot of that. I mean, there was, it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, it wasn't, like, bad where you, were gonna, you felt, like, unsafe. But it was bad. I mean, there was comments. You know, you could, it was just, it was racist. It was pretty bad. Apparently now it's a lot better in that, in that school. But, like... When I went there, it was it was pretty bad. It was there were just some. It wasn't everyone, obviously, but there was just like some people, and you're just like, oh my gosh, never really experienced that so much before. Which is, you know, it's it's a big issue in America. It's, it's a strange thing that you know that it still exists, and that's interesting about Sweden is that you don't really feel that as much. I mean, I guess now there's this, the Nazi party or whatever, but like you don't really feel it, like. You know, you probably you'll probably notice you never see like that many interracial relationships in the state, especially when you go to the south. You, you'll never see that so much. Like me marrying my wife with sweet, Swedish girls, like a huge deal to okay. like you know yeah. to my family. It was like, oh my gosh. Obviously, yeah. I mean, they have no choice, really. Oh. You know, I mean, I, and I told you know my I think my parents. I was sort of the black sheep of my family. You know, the only one that didn't go to university. Going to the music business is so foreign to my parents. You know, they have no no clue. Even my mom still doesn't know what I do. She doesn't know where the money comes from. None of that stuff. You know, she still thinks like practice. She'll be like, "Oh my, you know, I met some girl. Her daughter is a music teacher at a kindergarten. You should share your contacts with her." You know, like that's not the same thing. You know. <laughs> But anyways, I digress. So yeah, we so we went to high school and then we moved to another high school in Austin, and that's where I sort of found really found like music. There was a really great choir teacher there named Morris Stevens and I, I made a lot of friends there and I went into the choir program I always liked to sing and and one day in the apartment that we were in my sister had like an old keyboard like an old Yamaha keyboard and I just decided to take it out it was just in a box and I couldn't sleep and I was like oh, took it out. I started messing with it and I started like figuring out chords and I was probably just too lazy to learn other people's songs so I just started making up songs and I just started getting obsessed with it like really obsessed with it, like all night kind of headphones and like, you know, and I would start, you know, I started to stop losing interest in school because I was so into music and to the choir program there. 
and I would skip class and like go and sneak into the choir room and play piano and and try and learn. I mean, I'm not a great piano player back then. I was better, like um, self-taught and and writing songs. You know, that's what I would do. If I had a crush on a girl, it would be like you know, go to the write a song about how this girl doesn't talk to me. You know, that kind of stuff. What year were you born? 1978. Okay. So this was this was like in the 90s, 92, 93 when I really sort of got into the music thing. Who were your guys and girls sort of? What what were your heroes? I mean, I always loved music, so I was into the whole like I mean, Michael Jackson was the first thing I got Thriller. I remember going to Kmart and buying a Thriller single. I thought that was the album and I remember coming home. It was like the the little record, the LP. I remember coming home and it was only one song on it. I got really upset. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I want the whole album." And I was like, "Just listen to this song." And then after a while, I could do the whole thing, you know that kind of. But I remember that I got obsessed. I was a kid in the neighborhood that had the VHS tape of the Thriller video, and I remember like the kids in the neighborhood didn't want to come play with me because all I wanted to do was watch that video. But you must have been really, really young. I mean, what... yeah, I was eighty-four. Yeah, okay. Thriller came out, so, so yeah, you were six. Yeah, I was obsessed with Michael. I mean, I was obsessed with Michael. All my relatives would tell you I, I used to do like dance routines in any wedding or any time I could I would go to breakdance contests and I would like I would, you know I don't think I don't know if I was any good at the time but I was just like m dancing like you know I, I I wanted to dance like when I was a kid like, but you do know how to moonwalk no I don't I, I used to but I'm horrible it's been years and I, I tried I tried recently I'm just I can't do it I just lost all those skills but it was when I when I was a kid I used to go to like You know, there would be like amusement parks, and they would have a like cardboard box on the ground. It'd be kids break dancing, and I would just jump in and try. You know, I guess I don't think I was any good at it, but I thought I was at the time. But I love, so I got obsessed with that, and I was always like Lionel, Lionel Richie and, and things like that. And then when I was older, it was Boys to Men and Babyface and all that sort of '90s R&B, like Jodeci and all those kind of things. Belle the Foe, I got so into that because in Washington D.C. area, Manassas, that's what everyone listened to. All my friends introduced me to that yeah. to like to that whole thing and i recently had a period when i when i would listen to casey and jojo's hit perhaps 20 times a day yeah which one all my life baby 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 yeah oh ba yeah yeah that's all my life right? yeah yeah they had a couple but they were like they were amazing and and so i was obsessed with that like i was so into that kind of music i didn't even know nirvana existed till kurt cobain died okay yeah i didn't even know i was like what's the who, who? good for you yeah sorry <laughs> Like I, that, that's how. Like so, it's really interesting. All my my Swedes, like their influences are so different. Because I, like, they're like, you know, like Verb and blah blah. Like I didn't know, you know, I was around like you know, New Kids on the Block. But that, those were the uh, Paul Abdul and New Kids on. My sister was obsessed with New Kids on the Block, you know. And they used, used to have like four friends, and they used to all be one of them, and they used to practice all the choreography. And I was like the backup. So if one friend couldn't make it, I would have to be pretend I'm Donnie or Jordan or John, you know. So I know all the dance moves still. I, actually, I'm I, I know Donnie Wahlberg a little bit from New Kids. He's actually been to my house and stuff, which is funny because my wife was a big fan. So it was like he came to my house one day, and I was like, "What? Donnie Wahlberg's here?" And like, he's, just, he's the greatest guy. And like, I mean, I know all the songs. Like all this, so I always joke around the studio and people are like, yeah, you know, like that Led Zeppelin song. I was like, literally, my musical influences started with New Kids on the Block, and that's, that's about it. It sounds almost like you were like an entity, <laughs> or did you have friends with the same taste in music? Yeah, always. Yeah, they all. Yeah, my whole friend circle always had the same taste. And then when I started like singing in high school, they were all. I had like a boy band in high school called Forte. It's super cheesy. And we would like practice in the bathroom because like we like the acoustics, you know. <laughs> like, okay. We do like boys to men songs and like and all that kind of stuff, like cliche, like you'd see an American TV show. That's how, sort of how it was. It was. I loved it. That was the best. Some of the best times of my life. But it didn't get you laid. No. I mean, again, that was never even. And also, you know, you're in Texas. You're an Indian in Texas. Like the girls that like in my friends, they would never date somebody that wasn't Christian. That wasn't like a Christian Baptist. That's not even in their atmosphere. Again, like. Like you don't wake up going, I feel like doing heroin today. You know what I mean? They, that's not in the atmosphere. And I, and even if I, I had crushes on girls, but even if I had, like, you couldn't. I mean, I couldn't have a girl call my house. Like, I, like that kind of stuff didn't. It was before cell phones, right? That, that stuff didn't exist. You know, I remember one time my neighbor, who became a friend of mine, a girl named Laura, and she was, we became friends and hanging out. And one of my friends and her started dating, but we were like in 
my house and we had like a room in our house where we, like a game in texas they would call them game rooms it's just like a big room and you have a tv and you have some sofas it's almost like you can watch movies and you know and there was like we had this lying sort of half lying down couch and it was really big and me and laura were sitting next to each other on the couch but sort of like a lean back half lying down one and my friend who was actually dating her was on the floor and my mom walked in and saw me and laura sitting on this chair thing and got so she called me out and slapped my face because she was so angry that i was lying it and i was like but why <laughs> would you like it she was like but you never know what can happen what do you mean like you know she it was like kind of like because like how what would happen <laughs> like, it was like that kind of we come from that kind of world with that you know you have to change a channel if there's making out on television uh-huh, okay you know that that kind of thing because you know they come from like I think like what I've learned about Indian culture is it used to be very hedonistic in ancient India, but then when the Mughals came in, when the Muslims took over India, it became very conservative and the women covered up and, and a lot of the culture is still there. You know, I remember a lot of my friends know the story, but like, you know, when we wrote If You Seek Amy, which was our way of trying to get fuck on the radio, which it was actually the title was Alexander Crinlan's idea, by the way. Okay. It was like we were trying to figure out what we what we should what lyrics we should do, and Max was like you know, my friend Alex, he's got, he always liked the idea of, we're just thinking of stupid things, you know? It's like, he always used to say it would be great to have t-shirts, like, if you seek Amy, get it? Like, fuck me. Like, I can make that work. <laughs> then we made that work. And then there was, a, and here it was a really controversial song because it got on the radio and people started catching on. Like, wait a second, there, you know? And they had this whole thing on Good Morning America, one of the big morning shows here. And like, they, they had like teenagers talking about it. And like, do you guys know what what this song means you know things like that and my parents saw it so i get this call i'm in sweden i get this call my dad's like savan we see this thing on tv and i was like oh yeah about your song you're being indecent <laughs> and then my mom gets on the phone and she's like so when mrs patel's son is a doctor my son writes the pop song about the sex <laughs> and she's like really upset <laughs> you know so you know that's like what i like come so, from you know so does that matter to you or I mean, at the time i mean at the time it's the environment you're in so you don't so i was focused on music i wasn't focused on other stuff i mean i had crushes on girls and things like that and that's how songs were written right but i didn't going to the next step past even holding hands was like you didn't do that you know i mean but I, when it eventually happened how did that come around i mean i've only been with my wife oh uh-huh, okay all right <laughs> shocking i went to sweden When I went to Sweden, I sort of, I was there, I was always going there a few months, you know, for like two years. And then I, then I met Red One, who was like the first producer I actually ever met, like, because he was signed to BMG at the time and I was signed to BMG and I mean, this is pre the Lady Gaga stuff and all that. He was like, oh, but why do you keep going back? Like, what do you have to go back for? Because I was like the loser in, in my parents' house writing songs, trying to make it. And I, I got it, finally had a publishing deal, but like, you know, all my friends went to college and, you know. And I was just volunteering at a middle school to help build like a music program there and things like that. So I, I was I had nothing going on really. So I was like, actually, why don't I come to Sweden and just stay there? And it was pre nine eleven, so you American passport. I mean, I didn't know anything about visas and stuff, but it was like I stayed for a month, say for two months, three months. Don't you need a visa? Yeah, I guess I need a visa. You know, I'm just broke. I was sleeping on Red One's floor for like six months. Then I get a visa. It was back then, you, American passport. You just go in, you fill out a form, and you get it for like a year or two. I didn't know anything. I was like, didn't go into system. I didn't know anything of that stuff. How old are you? By um, probably like 21, 22, I think. But before that, I had been going back and forth a little bit. Then like I was there, you know, and that was my first time really like partying and stuff. I never went to the clubs really. I maybe sometimes I would, when I was, when I would go to London, I would go. So I would go to London and Sweden, go sort of in between, but like, but I was a lot mostly in, in Sweden for for those years And I had, you know, I was broke trying to every six months trying to find another place to live and the floor to crash on. And I would move from apartment to apartment. I mean, I lived off out of two suitcases because, you know, I didn't know I didn't know any better. My parents were sort of like they didn't they they didn't know what I was doing and all that kind of stuff. So, but then I met I met my wife. She went to school with some of Red One's crew at the time, and we were just at some bar. And and by the way, I hadn't even had a sip of alcohol at this point, like in my entire life. I had my first sip of alcohol when I was twenty three years old. My dad was an alcoholic, so it was, I always had this fear of alcohol. You know, anytime I saw like my cousins with a drink in their hand, I, when I was a kid, I would like knock the drink out of their hand and like really be angry. You know, and is your father still alive? Yeah, he's he's fine. He's been sober for years and years and years. Okay. But like yeah. when you know, he was an alcoholic when I was really young. So I I do have memories of, and also if you're an alcoholic, you're sort of 
you know, alcoholics get dry drunk, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So he, he had a temper when I was really young. So I remember all that stuff. So, so yeah, I didn't even drink, you know. And I met my wife. She walked in this bar, and they, her and her friends like waved to my friends because they went to school together. And I was like, oh, who's that? You know, just trying to being pretending to be cocky. <laughs> they were like, oh, we can go sit next to her. We know them. I'm like, yeah, let's sit next to them. You know that kind of thing. I never even like hit on a girl before, but for some reason I did or attempted to very poorly. And she was sort of in a weird place in her life and she was sort of like okay yeah, hi you know that kind of stuff and she gave me a number and i kept harassing her uh, <laughs> and every weekend sometimes we'd meet we'd just meet and we'd be at the same place and that kind of thing and then eventually it became more and and um yeah and that was like my first my first real like proper girlfriend my first like like real love and all that stuff. so it's all we, we were together for like 10 years before we got married and you know yeah she was there when i was broken and struggling and eating beans out of a can you know that kind of stuff and dealt with my traveling you know wonder why i didn't have visas and stuff and i'd have to go back and forth a lot you know and she came with me a lot of times so it was so we've had a journey you know that's very beautiful yeah hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It sounds like you, from a really early age, knew what you were going to do. Yeah, well, I think I knew I wanted to do something in music. But I was, that was when I was a kid. I sort of had that instinct, but I never really thought about it. Then I thought I could be a singer, and I realized an A and R guy at Jive Records at the time. That's a long story how I got to him, but it was like you know you can't really sing, man, but you write really good songs. Maybe you should just do that. You know, it's that kind of thing. I realized I was like, okay, I guess I'll just do that. But I got obsessed with writing songs. So I mean, I knew it probably. And when I was fifteen, I kind of knew that I was wanting to be a songwriter. That was like horrified my parents and horrified my family. I mean, I had cousins calling me up because it's a big Indian family. They all live in London mostly and and they would call me and say like what are you doing with your life you know all that kind of stuff trying to like you know say you know you need to go to school your mom's really worried you should really like you know get back into the whole education thing because you never know but i i never and i say this to people that when i meet like teenagers or kids i want to be music it's like you tell them how hard it is but like the ones that are going to make it are the ones that aren't going to really listen yeah like i never had a plan B because I never really and not in a cocky way I just never thought I mean I, I was just like well of course I'm just gonna do this you know and I did everything I could to do it and that was just you know I like I would when South by Southwest really started in Austin I would go to the Double Tree Hotel I found out where all the record label people would stay this went back when you had tapes you know and I had really bad demos. I'd like play on a keyboard and push record on a tape recorder and then play that from another tape recorder and do a bad uh, drums and you know that kind of stuff and like, I, and I would make tapes and send out. I bought a book full of music business addresses. I would send out. I must have I actually have the rejection letters. There's like 460 something rejection letters oh, in wow. my parents' house. And I would go south by southwest in this Double Tree Hotel, and I would pass out demo tapes to anyone with a tag. Because back then, when it wasn't that big, south by southwest, the record label would have tags on their. Say, oh, I'm from MCA Records. I'm from this. I would pass out demo tapes, and I would get kicked out of the hotel for soliciting. So I go back in the car, I'd put a hat on, change my clothes, and then go back in, you know. And I just do it two or three times till they caught on, and then I would go home, you know. And that's that's what I do. I would do send out tapes every day. I ended up getting like a bit of OCD because you want something so bad. Okay, I got a response today. I dropped the spoon today, so every day I would drop the spoon, and it got to the point where when I was making my tea, I would drop the spoon. I would turn my light on and off like five times. I would do I would do like all these strange things because it became this. 
thing because you want it so bad and you're so so we're desperate for something for because I'm I'm in Texas, you know. People say Austin's a music town, but when you're a pop songwriter, it's not a place for pop songwriter. I mean, it's for bands and indie bands that want to be cool and just stay in Texas. You know, yeah. it's not for people to do that wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, so it was a lot of that stuff. A lot of you know, you know, where we thought I was a big Babyface fan, and there's one time like in the Austin gossip column of the paper, it was like Babyface and his family are staying on Lake Travis. Like one of the lakes in Austin, like staying in a condo. So I actually I convinced four friends to come with me the next morning, and I stayed up the whole night making copies of demo. I made like a hundred something copies of my demo tapes, and this is when it was tapes. So you left to wait for the tape to finish, you know. So it was hours and hours to do that. And I wrote this really passionate letter, and I printed out like a hundred something copies, and I looked up all the addresses to rental condos around around Lake Travis, and there was a lot. And from like I think it was like six in the morning to like to like five in the in the evening, knocked on every single door that I could find around the, the rental condos around the lake, and put tapes on every single car I could uh, in the parking lot. Like, and I don't know if he was ever there. And I actually met him now, and L.A. Reid actually told him that story, which is really embarrassing. But I kept getting calls from people like, I don't know who this babyface guy is, but I like music. I'll check out your tape. You know, it was like months on end. I kept getting calls from random people like. I got your tape on my car. Was this meant for somebody else? You know, this baby face guy. I don't know who that is. You know, so so that you just do those things because you think that you, it's, it's survival, right? You're trying yeah. to. You don't even like now. People are like I can't believe you used to do those things. That's amazing. We're like, well, back then that was the only. I had no other option. It's not like I knew anyone in the music business. I wasn't in a in a real music city. I wasn't New York, L.A., or Nashville. Where if you're just a pop songwriter, you could. Again, in, in Austin. They call it the live music capital of the world. But when you're living there and you're like going to high school in the suburb of Austin, it's not, you can't go downtown. You're not 21. You don't, you're not a part of that whole thing. I, I didn't really even know it existed. So yeah, you do all those things and then you hope for responses and then eventually someone responds and then they link you up with somebody else. And I ended up going to Nashville to do a showcase, which I paid like $3,000 for. I saved up money and my parents like agreed to pay for half of it. For, and actually, little did I know, my, this whole time, my dad was keeping a tab. So when I first, when I started making money, I got a bill. <laughs> like, you owe me $28,000. <laughs> no joke. Oh, wow. actually, <laughs> You've paid that now, though. Yeah. Actually, like, my first, like, six-figure check, it was like, you owe me $28,000. I was like, I didn't know you were paying attention to that stuff. But, yeah, I went, so I went to Nashville, this showcase, and the manager saw me, introduced me to a lawyer in New York. And the lawyer was like, you know, if you're ever in New York, you know, give me a call, and I'll hook you up with people. And eventually I ended up going to New York because my cousin from London was there for work and I was visiting them and I called him up and I was like, hi, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm here. He's like, ah, all right, I'll see you at one o'clock. Just come over with your music. And, and I played him songs and then he hooked me up with all these publishers. I did these publisher meetings and they all went horrible, like super bad because my, tape, my tapes were shit. They were like really, really bad. And, you know, to the point where people were playing me other people's tape. Like, this is what you're competing against. I don't think you understand, you know. Young man, go back to school. It was like one of those things. But one guy, a guy named Clyde Lieberman at BMG Publishing, at the old BMG Publishing, saw something in the tapes. You know, he was like, there's something here. Like, like he could see, hear through the bad production and just hear the melodies and was like, there's something here. You know, let's stay in touch. And a year later, they ended up signing me. And then they, that's, so they, they're the ones who actually sent me to Sweden the first time. Because they were doing, uh, at the time, there was Merlin. Remember there was Sharon and there was Merlin? So Merlin was like the one that got all the work that Sharon didn't want, I guess. And, they, and later on, we all found out that they were selling themselves to like investors as, yeah, we do. We're the Swedes that do with the Backstreet Boys and all that, like taking credit for other, because they knew Sharon was so reclusive that, that they wouldn't ever find out. But they accidentally CC'd one of those emails to Tom at Sharon. It's like a whole, there's a whole funny story there. But like uh, Merlin was going to do a deal with BMG and an administration deal with BMG ended up not happening. But while they were, while they were sort of dating, BMG was like, Oh, we've got this new kid. And they're like, yeah, send him over. And when uh, this is during the whole backstreet Britney time. And I knew I was a music nerd. I mean, I knew I read all the credits. So I knew like, you know, Oh my God, I'm going to Sweden, like Max Martin, all these people. I didn't know that how reclusive those guys were. But it, and then all the Americans didn't know anything about Sweden. So they, the American record people were just like, oh, it's the Swedes. Like, they're all the same. They're all like, <laughs> they're making all the hits. Just go to Sweden. Work with any Swede. It was sort of like that. Yeah. And, I, and that was the first time I met another songwriter. So the guy, you know, a guy named Matt, I think his name was Magnus Orstevall. He worked for BMG at the time. And 
he picked me up from the airport and he I want to introduce you to some of our writers and the first one I met was Red One. That uh, guy on Jive Records who told you that you can't sing. Was that sort of a disappointment with you? No, um, kind of, but not really. I mean, I think especially looking back, even looking at history and looking at this country, I mean, there's it's going to be 50 years before there's like an Indian pop star anyway. It's just not going to happen. Okay. You know, you're not going to get middle America girls putting an Indian guy on their walls. That's, that's oh, not, wow, is that so? That's not going to happen here, you know. Oh, it's, that's so interesting. You know, I didn't that, know. That's really not, that's not how... I mean, I think it's a general thing in the world, you know? It's like, what's the concept of beautiful? There is sort of a perception of what that is, you know? It's actually Swedish people, but you guys don't know that. You guys are so used to each other, so you... Um, but you, I was there is. sitting here thinking that you are really good looking. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for you're a good liar. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, it was sort of. But I mean, that's a funny story. That whole thing because I signed up for there was an Austin songwriters group, and I, I just saw something in the paper, and I signed up, so I got newsletters. And it, in the newsletter, it said Jive, and it would sometimes have like so and so is looking for songs for so and so, and. And it's always like it was always tiny record labels, but I knew of Jive Records, and it said Dave McPherson at Jive Records has a new band called Backstreet Boys looking for songs. So it had an address, sent the tape out. A few weeks later, I didn't, I even forgot about it because I was sending so many tapes out at the time. A few weeks later, I get this call. I was like, "Is this uh, Savin Kakacha?" And I'm like 17 at the time, so I'm like, "Yeah, this is Savin." This is Dave McPherson at Jive Records. I don't know how your tape got on my desk because it sounds like shit. And I, I mean, it's like this is like I'm a 17 year old at like eight in the morning before I go to school. I was like, okay, but there's this one song on here called "Falling Like the Rain" that I think is amazing. I have this new group called Backstreet Boys. I'd love. Are you published? And I was like, no. He's like, okay. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to play them the song, get them to record it. And I was like, well, at the time, I have to digress. I told you I went to Nashville for that showcase. So. At the time, at the same time, I got a response from this guy who ran that showcase, and he was telling us that, like, you know, I'll produce your demos, and all you have to do is sign all your publishing to me. And I didn't know anything about the music business, and my parents obviously didn't know. And we started talking to him. I had my mom, talk, my dad, talk to him because he had to, he wanted to talk to my parents. So we didn't know anything, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll give him a pub. I'll find the publishing of the song. You have to just pay me three thousand dollars, and you can perform at this place, and I'll make demos for the, of this song." And we had already said, "Okay, we'll do it," because I saved up the money and everything. So we already said that we we're going to do it. And I was going to go in like a week. And I was like, well, you know, I'm trying to be an artist. And this guy saying he's a national saying he's going to make me a star. He's like, what guy? I gave him his name. Of course, little did I know this guy was just like a nobody that was like ripping people off. And so he was like, I'm going to find out from my national friends. I'm going to give you a call back. So the next morning I got a call. Hey, I was like, hi. Yeah, this guy, none of my people know him. So if my people don't know him, he's not you know, you're, you're getting ripped off here. And I was like, yeah, but I got to talk to my parents because we already talked to him and we already told him that I was going to go to Nashville. He's like, listen, don't do anything with this song. This group's going to be huge. And then I was like, yeah, but I want to be an artist. And I was so naive, but I was like, okay, well, let me talk to my parents. And my parents, I told my parents, and my mom was like, but you or the guy's name was Pete that in Nashville. My mom was like, but you already promised Pete. You can't, you know, if you have to be an adult about this, you promise him that you're giving him the thing you cannot back on your word, okay? It's not good. So I called the guy, Dave McPherson, the next day. I'm like, hi, Dave. Yeah, my my mom's saying that I can't do it. He was like, you guys don't fucking know what you're talking about. This is going to be a huge band. Trust me, don't make this mistake. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to do. So I talked to my mom again. She's like, I already told you. You have to, you cannot back on your word. I'm like, okay. I called Dave McPherson. Like, and my mom's like, let me talk to your parents. He talks to my dad. I, I, don't, I don't even remember what he says to my dad, but basically my dad is like, you know, we told this guy we're going to do it and he wants to be a singer. He doesn't, you know. And so Dave, like, call, so for like a week, Dave's calling me every day going, you're a fucking idiot. You're a fucking idiot. What are you doing? You're not a great singer. Trust me. If you want to be an artist, we'll talk about that later, but give this group this song. And at the time, you had to sign your publishing to Zomba to get a cut on Backstreet Boys and Sync or Britney. That was how it worked. Otherwise, they wouldn't cut the song. So I gave this guy, though, my publishing, 100% of this song. <laughs> and it's like nine months later, Backstreet Boys is all over the radio and blows up. And I'm in the car and I'm like, Mom! <laughs> you know, because it's like the biggest thing in the world. And I just gave up a 100% song on Backstreet Boys. But you got out of that pretty soon. Or, or no, no, because he signed the kid. The guy disappeared. He signed it just for those three songs. It was okay. like three songs. And one of them was that one particular song this guy wanted. All right. And like totally like, you know. 
But in hindsight, that was one of those lessons in life because then I started reading about the music business. Then I actually started reading up about stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the Donald Passman book, how all, all you need to know about the music business, which is like the Bible. I read that, you know, I, I, then I was like, okay, this, I need to learn about this, you know. But it was one of those things like, mom, why did you let me do that? Because, you know, he's 17. You look at, I think he sold like 24 million albums. It was 100% song. So really like math, it's probably like would have made $2 million. I would have been a 17-year-old in high school with $2 million, you know. And a Backstreet Boys cut. Probably it would have ruined your life. No, no. Like, in hindsight, that's what would have happened. Yeah. Because there's something about, and I always tell younger writers this and, and, and friends this, something about having to struggle. You know, it's like these TV shows, right? And I've worked on these TV shows like X Factor and stuff like that. You see these kids... Most of the time, even if they win or whatever, it doesn't work out. And it ends kind of sad and tragically because they lose their money or whatever. And it's because what people forget is that I, I'm going to compare it to working out, right? So if you all of a sudden wake up and you're really buff and now you have to bench press 300 pounds, but the day before you were skinny and you didn't do that. So your body's not conditioned to maintain that, right? Because when you're really cut and you're buff and you're, and you're like looking good, you have to maintain that, right? But if you just wake up that way all of a sudden and all of a sudden you have to maintain that and you have to lift 300 pounds every day you're not conditioned to do that i compare it to that like yeah, of course you have to slowly get to that spot because then when you get there you know how to do it you know how to handle it you know how to and same with artists from these tv shows right when yeah. they all of a sudden now they're famous but they didn't do the they didn't do the groundwork and they they're not conditioned to work that hard they're not conditioned to do these things you, you for instance you've been working with Tori Kelly lately uh, i mean yeah. she's super young right but she's been she's doing 21, it 21 yeah. yeah but she's been working like since she she was 12 or yeah, something yeah I mean, she went through the she went through it yeah. she struggled you know so now when if it happens hopefully it happens for her buy her single on iTunes that's <laughs> um, good yeah she'll be able to deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, but I've seen these TV show kids sometimes and they get famous right away and they don't know how to deal with it because it's it, all of a sudden now they're working out there. They have to maintain this buff body where the day before they were scrawny, you know, yeah. in, in, in that sense, if that metaphor makes sense. It's, yeah, it does. But can you tell sort of, because obviously the whole world wants to work with you guys uh, on MXM Studios. Yeah. Can you tell when you meet an artist, I mean, if they've got it? I mean, you do your best. I guess you can tell. You have your own opinion if they're a star, if they walk in the room and they're a star. But sometimes they're, sometimes they're a star and they're not very good. And sometimes they're not very good. They're they're not a star, but they're fucking great. You know. And I think people can become stars. You know. After you know. But I think that X factor is you can't. That's what you're born. You're born with that. So some people just haven't. Some people don't. And I think you notice that people gravitate. I think you can sometimes tell. You know, like. There's certain mega stars who walk in the room, and even if you weren't looking at them or didn't know what they look like, you could probably tell that that's somebody. You know, people have that aura, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And I noticed even with one when when One Direction was put together because I was working on the show and I was sort of behind the scenes, their mentor on the show, and you know there was something about those kids, especially Harry. Like anytime they were gathered somewhere, all the staff and everyone were all of a sudden around. This is like the early days, like day one from them being even just put together. There was something about the chemistry there, and especially Harry Styles, that everyone wanted to be where they were. Like all the adults, all the kids, everyone slowly, and and you saw it, and you were like, you know, I remember I actually had my emails. I looked up and I emailed Simon Sonny, and I was saying, Sonny works for the label, and I said, I went back to Simon's office, actually, after I met them the first time together, and I said, yeah, I hope you got 360 rights, because this is going to be massive. And What I'm, does that mean? 360 rights means a piece of the touring and the merch and everything. Oh, okay. Because yeah. historically, Simon used to never get that from the artists. Uh-huh, okay. And I remember, and I have an email to Sonny going, that band's going to be huge. And he replied, what band? And I go, One Direction. <laughs> I remember that, because this was like in the early days when I was deciding whether I was going to work on the show or not. But yeah, some people have that. Like Enrique Iglesias walks in a room, whether you know who he is or not, or ever saw his face. And that's why he's lasted, you know, even if he has had a lot of flops, he'll always get a shot because he's one of the few that he walks in a room and it's like, oh, yeah, but that's that's the star. And some just don't have it, but then they're so good. What's your forte? I think I'm a good songwriter, but I think I'm, I have I think I think, you know, maybe my contemporaries will agree or disagree. I, th- I think I have good instincts on what I've always been good at what to do and what not to do. I think I've I've. 
there's that thing of working hard and working or working smart. I think I've been good. I mean, I work really hard, but I think I've been good at working smart, like picking the right projects. My instincts with those things have usually been pretty correct. And when I haven't followed those, they haven't worked, you know, and now I've learned really to just follow those, you know, and really go with your guts and, and, and obviously listen to people that know better sometimes, but still your gut is your gut. You know, you have to go with that. I guess that's my, that's my forte. I think picking the right things to do. Have you had your lyrics become tattoos yet? I'm sure they have been. I'm sure like what makes you beautiful is tattooed on plenty of teenage girls. Yeah, I'm sure. And I know, actually I know if you seek Amy has been, because I remember seeing at the time, like on the internet, people were like crazy Britney friends. Yeah. Have done that. So I'm sure. If I'd been 22 years younger, I'd, I'd go for uh, Take My Breath and Never Let It Go. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's yours. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, Can we sort of discuss your everyday life working with uh, at the MXM studio? Yeah. So every day, so what do, what do I do? I wake up at five in the morning usually because my kid is difficult. <laughs> five or six in the morning, we get him ready. If I've been working late the night before, I'll get him ready I'll sleep. I try and half sleep for like a half hour, an hour, and I'm really just replying to emails, lying in bed. And I take him. I usually take him to school by eight, so I'll go downstairs, eat, and take him to school. And I usually have morning meetings, and then I'm at the studio. Sometimes I'm at the studio. What, what kind of meetings? Usually with managers or A and R people. I've sort of been delegated. Well, maybe it naturally just happened that way. That a lot of the projects that we do, are, I help bring. I bring in or bring in the opportunities because I had a lot of the relationships with the american record business you know yeah. so i think peter t- told me that you you are sort of the the one who knows everybody you are so super connected and you know who's who and yeah i think because i came up so slow yeah you know i came up from the ground and it was always baby steps you know so along the way you meet a lot of people and and some of those people now are executives and stuff and i think you know the difference is i guess between like the old sharon guys for example they went there to sharon it was very reclusive and they had maybe one contact with the outside wor- world really and and they were sort of oh you're doing Britney now you're doing insane so it wasn't like that hustle but I, I've got to go through the hustle so along the way yeah you meet everyone and you get the instincts of what to do who's bullshitting you who's not so I like to do that I like, I like to meet and know what's happening know what's worth doing know what's coming up even if it's two years from now know give find opportunities for the other writers for the younger writers at MXM so everyone feels good and feels busy and then and is and feels like they're doing something productive i think it's really important and then around like 11 or 12 start working and then sometimes if i don't have meetings i'll come to this office and i'll just start working because no one really gets going to like 12 or 1 usually because i'm the only, the only one with like a young kid at the, when other than peter when he's here but and then you then we if we're writing you know there's a lot of meetings during, during the day and going to other people's rooms and because i guess i've sort of like when Max isn't available, I'm I guess the second step to like the mentoring. So I, I help like you know listen to people's songs and and do all that while I try and stay creative myself and write depending on what we're writing with or recording depending on what artists we're recording. But now with I've slow, I don't write so much. I kind of more focus on particular projects and just really making sure everything's great, which is the stuff you know what I learned from from Max, you know. All that stuff is rubbed off, I think, in a good way of, you know, do few things, but do few things great rather than a lot of things just good, you know? Mm. So, yeah, it's a lot of, like, right, it's a lot of managing people, I guess, for the most part, and then a little creating here and there, you know, my day. Would you like it to be the other way around? Yeah, we're working towards that. You know, MXM is growing, and, 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 while like Martin Dodd is here, so who's Max's manager, he when he's here, it's easier for me a little bit focused because I've got someone to hand. Then there's someone to handle stuff, you know. But it's great. I can't complain. I mean, also I'm very, I'm able to be very creative. You know, obviously there's a lot of great stuff coming out. But yeah, it's it's, it's fun. I love it. I love like being in the center of it and 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 helping people when I can because it was people who helped me to get me where I am, you know. It's a really fantastic place to be in. But is there a competition as well? Are you competing with... Sometimes it's like you hear something that's great and you're like, fuck, that's fucking good. I, I think what the great thing is is that you've got probably the greatest, I think, and mo- greatest and most consistent writer ever in pop music there. So that's such a high bar that... You know, realistically, none of us are going to achieve. 
You know what I mean? So that in itself sets this super high bar. So you're you're almost competing against so, like something unattainable. So not, rather than competing against each other, you're competing against the, this legend. Like you know, the, I don't know those achievements. You know, so nothing you do is ever ever makes you satisfied. You know, like I remember one time I was telling me and Max talking about this the other day. It was really funny because. You know, we're sitting together at the same table at the ASCAP Awards, you know, and it was, it was 2000, 2013 when I won those three. And I won three ASCAP Awards, right? And usually, like, you know, people throw parties for themselves if they win one ASCAP Award. I mean, like, David Guetta, I think that night won two, and he had, like, a whole party, and it was like, whoa, I won two. But I won three, but I'm sitting at the same table as Max Martin, who then wins Songwriter of the Year, and had won like 10 ASCAP awards that night. And we're sitting next to each other. So his stack of 10 and my stack of three. And I'm just looking at mine going, eh, whatever. Like, I can't, like, it's not a big deal. I won three ASCAP awards. Wait, he won 10. I mean, like, like, this is nothing, you know? So there's always that, like, the bar starts. So you're trying to just keep up with, with this genius that you're, that, that, that's, that you're working with. And that's been an amazing mentor. So I, I feel personally, the competition isn't like with each other. It's, it's with the enigma of like, you know, you're trying to at least not suck because he set this bar that's so high yeah. and the standard that's so high. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think I think competition is trying. I think the more competition, more. And I used to be a little bit more competitive with my contemporaries, other top line writers. Like, oh, he's got that. Okay, fuck, I want to do this, you know, and keep score. I was like, okay, well, I've got four things, and he's got one thing, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you do keep track of the billboard. List yeah, yeah, project. yeah. I look. I want to. I want to be as big as possible. I think so. Within the camp, I don't think it's competitive, but I think I am competitive to other people outside our camp. Are you doing better than uh, Doctor Luke? <laughs> No comment. I think he's. I think he'll. He's won at the end of the day. Anyway, he's done amazing stuff. But like, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> Would you like to recommend anything? Something. Enjoy life. Find something that you love and go for it. I think that's the best recommendation I can give people. Don't uh, don't hold back. Just go for something you love. That's that's that that's. You know, the most un- unhappy people I, I know in my life are the people that didn't do that, that live with regrets. Should have done that, I should have done that, I wish I did that. Or, or limit themselves, you know. Yeah. I see that a lot actually in Sweden where people limit themselves. Oh, I can't do that. Why? Do it, you know. That's maybe the good, the American, there's very bad things about American culture and more great things about Swedish culture. But the one thing that I think is great about American culture is the the naivety, the optimism of anything is possible. I think that that I'm glad I have, you know, because I came out there was, what I have done in where I was, where I grew up was impossible. It was never going to happen, you know. So I think that to be optimistic and, and not don't limit yourself. I think that's super important. Who do you think I should interview on Varvet? You know who I love? We should interview you should interview Bill Maher if you can get to him. You know what I did yesterday? What? Interviewed Bill Maher. No. I did. I've got the shirt here to prove it. Are you serious? Are you serious? He gave me this, personally. Are you kidding me? No. Holy shit. Yeah. That's, that's so weird. That's, <laughs> that's a really Introduce strange... me to Bill Maher. He's like one of my heroes. Was he cool? Was he really nice? Yeah, he was super. He's a brilliant guy. He's so brilliant. But can you tell me another name? Because I, Bill Maher yeah, already did. Bill Maher. The next name that would have come up, who was one of my favorite people, is passed away. It was Robin Williams. Yeah, that's going to be hard. That's going yeah. to be tricky. <laughs> you know what? You never know. Like Robin, <laughs> probably a silent interview. But he was he was amazing. He's a genius. Oh my gosh, who would be good to interview? Oh, you know what's a good one? Who well, I think is good, but I'm a music business guy. Is Irving Azoff? You know who he is, right? No. He managed the Eagles, and like he's he's a brilliant guy. That's a great name. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Savan Koteja, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, if you want to follow him on social media, he is Savan underscore Koteja at Twitter. And he also has a Facebook page and so forth. Google him, why don't you? He is also on Instagram. He's called Ahasuki there. A-W-S-U-K-I. All right. I'm just sorry that he didn't have another hour. It would have been wonderful to talk more to him about 
stuff and uh, to get an insight in his world it's so fascinating when people are at that level i mean they're basically the best studio in the world all right that was it for today thank you christina jollingbido for being the producer thank you lovisa olson for being the editor and thank you acast for being the distributor and i'm christopher triumph if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at varvetpod anyways in english in swedish i'm at triumph with an f all right speak to you in two weeks bye bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.